the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello and welcome to the Situation Report, where we give you the information you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stolnicker, here with Chad Robichaux, and glad to have you joining us today. And uh, Chad, there are some things that we've always kind of understood as Americans, mm-hmm. and the definitions of those things are changing. Uh, when we used to, in the past, talk about living the American dream, we had a common understanding of what that what meant. meant right. But now it's as if we have two Americas looking at the American dream from very different perspectives, and it just doesn't mean the same. Yeah, it's a, it's a doers and the takers. I mean, there's a bunch of people lined up at the border right now, right. some pursuing the American dream and some pursuing coming here to get what's given to them. Right. And, uh, you know, I think in my life growing up, I uh, grew up a rough childhood, uh, didn't really have a lot of opportunity uh, just in front of me because of the way I grew up. Right. When I was 17 years old, I, I made a decision to raise my hand and yeah. enlist in the United States Marine Corps and pave my own way yeah. and pursue the American dream. And uh, and and I've uh, been able to do well out of hard work and grit and provide for my family and and achieve a lot of things in my life that I that I aspired to achieve. And I, right. I think that's. Uh, and America, I believe, is available. I believe that America is available for everybody, regardless of where you come from, what color your skin is, who your parents were. Right. That America is still alive for everybody. Yeah, when we talk about liberty, and that is the founding principle of the United States, that, that liberty principle, it really means that we can pursue uh, what we believe is, is the path in front of us, what That's we right. believe is our destiny. That really is living the American dream, but so much of this has been... Um, redefined, and definitions are important. As Americans have become more and more divided, the answer to what is the American dream and how do we live the American dream has become more and more complex. And uh, thankfully, we've got a great guest on today. Yes, we do. Who is going to help us with this, and it's an honor to have with us today, Dinesh D'Souza. Dinesh is a New York Times best-selling author, filmmaker, political commentator. He speaks and debates on politics, philosophy, Christianity. I'm sure he's no stranger to this audience and so glad that he could be with us. Dinesh, thank you for your time. Thanks for jumping on with us. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Looking forward to it. Glad to be with you. We are going to talk about living the American dream. This is a big topic, but before we jump into that specifically, uh, because I think it's very important, can you tell us your story of coming to the United States and why this is such an important topic to you? I was born um, into a middle-class family in Bombay, India. My dad was a, um, an engineer, my mom a housewife. I grew up on the outskirts of Bombay, now called Mumbai, and um, I went to, um, you know, I was a student in high school when a fellow came to our high school from the Rotary Club. This was the Mumbai Rotary Club. Oh, wow. And he goes, well, there's this international youth exchange program. We send kids over to Australia and Canada and England and the United States. Uh, kids from those countries come to India. They live with American families for a year. They go to high school. It's kind of a, a way for people who have had a somewhat sheltered environment to be exposed to another culture. So I came to America at the age of 17 uh, to actually a small town in Arizona on the Mexican border. Hmm. I lived with four families over the course of a year. 
and I went to the 12th grade of high school. Uh, and at the end of that, uh, a high school counselor took me under his wing, uh, kind of shepherded me through the college application process. And that's how I ended up sort of staying in America, wow. going to college here, uh, ultimately becoming an American citizen and living, as you say, the American dream. Yeah, it's awesome. Dinesh, when you talk about the American dream, which you uh, have coined, what do you mean? What's it mean to you? Well, the American dream, uh, if you look at the sort of uh, conversation about it, or even the literature around it, by and large, it focuses on the issue of economic opportunity. It focuses on the idea of people who grew up typically in poor countries, or they grew up very poor themselves. And so they come to America looking for uh, a better life, a better here meaning materially better where they are not struggling to cope with necessity. They don't have to worry about, you know, where the next meal is going to come from. They have a roof over their head. Uh, they can fix the braces on their kids' teeth. Uh, so those kinds of things are typically what people talk about. But to me, uh, those are a part of the American dream, but they're not actually the most important part at all. Uh, for me, the most part of the, um, important part of the American dream is the dream of being the architect of your own destiny. Mm. So to give you an idea, I grew up in a family where I didn't miss a meal. Uh, my fa family had a car. It was kind of an old car and a bit of a clunker, but it did get around. Uh, and um, so I wasn't lacking materially for anything. And so, you know, if you ask me, is my life materially better in America? I would say, yes, it is. But the real difference is that if I had stayed in India, my life would to a large degree have followed a certain predictable pattern. It's the same pattern of my dad's life and his dad before him and all my uncles. So what I'm getting at is your destiny is to a large degree given to you. This is the kind of life you are scheduled to live. But by coming to America, I realized that I can chart my own course. I'm sort of in the driver's seat of my own future. Uh, I can do things with my life, which I have done. I mean, I, you know, who, if I went to my grandfather at the age of 12 and said, you know, and when I get to the middle of my life, I'm going to make a movie uh, and I'm going to release it in a thousand theaters. He would think, you know, man, he'd be like, you'd call my mom and say, you know, take this boy's temperature. <laughs> He's obviously something wrong with him. So I've been able to do things with my life that I would never have been able to do in India. And to me, that uh, choreography of one's own life is the essence of the American dream. Awesome. Where have, where have we... Uh, and we'll continue working through this, but where have we lost that? It seems like that was a common understanding, as you say, the choreography of one's destiny, the liberty to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. That's where we were founded. That's what we've always understood as the American dream. How have we lost that along the way? Because we seem to have two Americas that define living the American dream very, very differently. Yeah, I agree with that. So I, when you say how we lost it, there's no, there's no we anymore, you know. Uh, there is about right. a half of the country that still believes in that exact same American dream. And I would suggest that most immigrants who come to this country at least come sort of voluntarily. I'm not talking about refugees or in a kind of a unique situation. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually not even talking about migrants who come across the border because there are kind of two different reasons to come across the border. One is 
because you're hardworking and entrepreneurial and you want to have a better life. And the other is that there are all kinds of freebies in America that you don't get if you stay back in Mexico. <laughs> so you get two types of people who come across the border, hard workers and freeloaders. And that may be a little bit of a simple-minded way to divide things, but those are two very different, even opposite motives for coming to America. So the bottom line of it is there is a large body of Americans who are still attached to the old American dream, but there are lots of people today who don't believe in it. They don't even believe in the individualism behind it. To them, ultimately, uh, everything is social, social justice, uh, oppressor groups and oppressed groups. And the irony of it is that you can be in an oppressor group even if you have no history of oppression. Mm. You can be descended from a guy who fought on the northern side of the Civil War, who was killed in Gettysburg. Your ancestor gave his life for emancipation uh, and for freedom, but yet you're white, so too bad you're right. a member of the <laughs> oppressor class. Sure. And you can be a member, you can be an African-American de descended in a straight line from a black slave owner in Louisiana who owned 50 slaves. And by the way, there were a bunch of those in Louisiana uh, and nevertheless, you are a victim because you are a member of a victim group. So that's a whole different conception of America. It's fascinating um, how different people look at this American dream and how different people would define this is what the American dream is. For you, you have clearly charted a course for your life. So you looked at this and said, I can navigate this on my own. I have the liberty to do that. And what you've decided to do with that is to write books, to produce films, to debate on campuses and really try to break down and explain uh, what it means to be an American, what it means to be a good citizen, and, and philosophically what that even means. Uh, what inspired you to take that course? I'm going to write books. I'm going to develop documentaries. I'm going to engage in this larger conversation. I, um, I realize that I'm in somewhat of a unique position in a couple of ways. One is that uh, having grown up in a different culture, now, I've spent most of my adult life, of course, in America, but nevertheless, almost 20 years of my life in India, um, it gives me a little bit of a dual perspective, the outsider perspective and the insider perspective at the same time. And that uh, bifocal look at America, I think, is really helpful because I'll see people complaining about America. They go, America's horrible because it does this. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, everybody in the world does that. Right. Uh, so there's nothing right. uniquely American about what you're complaining about. But the a solution to your problem uh, is uniquely American. Only Americans take these problems seriously. Right. Uh, only, in, only in America is it an odd thing when you are stopped by a cop not to slip him a $50 bill to get out of it. Sure. That's the normal thing you do in Brazil. This is the normal thing you do anywhere in Africa and in India. Uh, in fact, if you show the cop your license, he's actually looking for the money. And if you haven't included the money, he looks at you like, don't you know there should be money in this? Uh, you know, so this is the way it is. Right. Everyone accepts it, you know. And um, so the advantage of having grown up elsewhere is you can put it this way. You can recognize what scholars call American exceptionalism more easily. The second thing is there's so much nonsense that is said about race in this country it really helps for me to be neither white nor black, but also mm. to be kind of a person of color because it's more difficult to sort of paint me as some sort of apologist or some kind of white guy right. just trying to protect his own privileges. So I'm able to address the issue with a certain independence of mind and candor. Now, admittedly, every now and then some kind of Yale-educated Indian American will come to me and say, you know, <laughs> decolonize your mind or you know, something ridiculous <laughs> that he's picked up from his sociology professor. Right. So I deal with a little bit of that, but uh, for that 
reason also, I think it's important for me to weigh in. And finally, it's because, you know, I think that a lot of people in America benefit from American entrepreneurship. I think of all these guys who have businesses, for example, and they are, they benefit from an atmosphere of liberty, but they do nothing to protect that atmosphere. Mm. So in other words, they feel like I'll look after my own business. But if you say, listen, you know, you're like a, you're like a settler who's going out West, you know, in a covered wagon, you don't just have to protect your ranch or homestead. You've got to protect the community from being raided by outlaws of which there are many roaming around right, and right. they're heavily armed. So it might be helpful to have some gunslingers on your side <laughs> that are going to discourage them from burning down your ranch and taking all your stuff. So I feel that there is a need for people to stand up for these principles. And so yeah. that's kind of why I've devoted my career to being a spokesman, a defender, an explainer, an apologist, however you call it, for American exceptionalism. I wanted to take a minute to let our audience know about the work that we do through an incredible veterans nonprofit called the Mighty Oaks Foundation. Many of our nation's warriors struggle with the hardships of military service and reintegration back into civilian life. Often they leave broken homes in their aftermath and comprise one of the most at-risk groups for suicide, with over 20 veterans who take their lives every single day. Mighty Oaks tackles this critical issue with our faith-based peer-to-peer resiliency and recovery programs offered at no cost to our honored servicemen and women at beautiful ranches across the United States. Mighty Oaks has one of the highest success rates of any program available anywhere. Visit MightyOaksPrograms.org to learn more about how you can make a direct impact in the lives of our servicemen and women to help them find a new life purpose through hope in Christ. Again, that's MightyOaksPrograms.org. Witnessing the transformation that these men and women go through is absolutely incredible. There are no words to describe seeing warriors restored to the lives they were created to live, changing their legacies for eternity. Your support is needed now more than ever and will ensure that our programs are here for our warriors who are in desperate need. Again, the website is MightyOaksPrograms.org. Has, have you seen an increase in censorship towards you and towards your efforts in the last years, or is it? I mean, I am definitely seen as a threat. Now, I w- I'm a bigger threat because I once I started making movies. Uh, mm. When I was writing books, I was kind of a nuisance, but <laughs> books have a more narrow audience. They'll yeah. reach, you know, 30, 40,000, maybe 100,000 copies. I've sold books that have sold up to 200,000 copies, so that's a big bestseller. But, of course, a movie is seen by many more than that, millions of people. And um, so once I started making movies, I realized that, uh, you know, people began to um, uh, see me as a a threat. The Obama administration certainly saw me as a threat. Um, And um, uh, so uh, there are all kinds of ways of trying to block my films, uh, block them from getting distribution, block them from getting out there. Mostly they've been unsuccessful. I've been able to sort of navigate around them. Uh, but nevertheless, we do deal with obstacles that I would not deal with for sure were I on the political left. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, we all leave a legacy behind. I believe you're creating a, a great one. Uh, what would you most like, most strongly want communicated about your life and your, your life's work? Well, I would say that I have uh, sort of two big topics that I uh, talk about and write about. Um, uh, the, in the political domain, it is on the, uh, the meaning of America and the meaning of America in the world. 
Um, and then, I, but I've also been doing some Christian apologetics. And by that, I mean, I've been debating some of the uh, prominent uh, atheists around the world. I think I've debated virtually all of the major mm -hmm. ones. Um, and I did a series of campus debates with Christopher Hitchens, who was probably during wow. his lifetime, the most recognized face of modern American atheism. Yeah. Now, these debates I never do typically in the church. They're not typically in the pew. Um, so I'm different than a lot of Christian apologists in that I don't function at the level of the pastor's conference or the youth conference. Um, my debates have been in the St. Louis Museum of Art. Uh, they've been at the University of Colorado at Boulder, typically with a very secular audience and the debate is conducted in completely secular language. When you, uh, when you do those debates, you talk about that, and I, I've seen a lot of the press around those. Um, personally, what is your feedback like from you know, young people, folks who are actually searching, not those who are looking for a fight, but those who are trying to figure out you know, the truth? You know, this is uh, fascinating because, um, because I think that the, that the format of the debate attracts a very wide range of people. Sure. It's not just people committed to one side or the other. Now, you'll get some people who like the gladiatorial aspect right. of the debate. It's <laughs> right. like two guys in the MMA ring, you know, right. and there's a little bit of that, and that's okay. Uh, but you also get a lot of people who I would call seekers. Yes. Uh, they're not outright atheists. I mean, if you said to them, is it true that we human beings are merely, you know, collections of carbon molecules walking around, they'd be like, no. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you said to them, what do you think about the organized church? They'd be like, no. So the, these are people who operate in that large middle zone where they feel like there's something more, there's something bigger, there's a purpose to life. But what is it? I'm not sure. So it's fascinating to put a kind of a believer and an atheist in that ring but a believer who's not what they expect, because they expect me to go, you know, the book of Leviticus says that, and the yeah, book of right, Gospel of Matthew right. says this, and I don't do any of that. Um, I, I'm talking basically the same language that their professors talk in class. Uh, and I appeal to the same rules of evidence and the same type of history and the same type of biology. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of taken aback by that because they're not expecting that. And, um, and uh, so it, it results in a very interesting conversation. I find at the end of it, people are willing to listen in a way that they weren't when they first walked in the door. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I think that's the kind of discussion as Christians we need to have more and more is engaging with people where they are, but at an intellectual and philosophical level that makes sense that they're willing to listen to. Yeah, I mean, to take the kind of example of what we mean, you know, the, we'll talk about, let's just take, for example, the issue of miracles. Uh, now, a secular kid will go, well, miracles are impossible. There's no yeah. such thing as a miracle. Uh, only irrational people believe in miracles. And, uh, you know, miracles require faith. Um, and, of course, we here in the real world believe in evidence. We don't believe in faith. Right. Uh, we believe in scientific laws. And scientific laws make miracles impossible. So then I, in a very Socratic and open-minded, will say, will say to them, well, okay, why don't you name a scientific law that you know uh, admits of no exceptions. So then they'll say something like, well, you know, e equals mc square, or they'll say something like, the speed of light is a known, it's a constant, 186,000 miles per second in a vacuum. Uh, that's a scientific law as firmly established as any scientific law. And then I'll say to them, okay, well, you can take a light meter and you can measure the speed of light here, and then you can do it over there, and then you can do it out in the field. But how do you know that on a, on a star, let's just say five light years away from here, how do you know that light over there travels at that speed? 
Have you been over there? Have you put your light meter over there? Have you measured it? We haven't measured light anywhere uh, in the universe, out there in the vast universe. How do you know that light always and everywhere travels at the same speed? Where is the proof of that? You can't tell me that you've measured it seven times and therefore the eighth time it's going to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's like saying that you saw seven white swans and therefore you're really shocked when you show up in Australia and see a black swan. <laughs> uh, well, you, there never was a law that all swans have to be white in the first place. It's just that all the swans you saw were white and therefore you jump to the erroneous conclusion that a swan has to be white, which happens to be factually incorrect. That was great. I, I love I love the fact that you know we can walk people through that, and so much of what we've been told, what we've been taught, what we believe um, is something that we believe because it's right here, because we've always seen it that way. And just having someone open our view, uh, man, it's so important, particularly for young people that are developing and figuring things out. I think in my case, it was really helpful to grow up in a society in which Christians are a small minority. Remember the Christians in India, only 3%. Right. And that's the Catholics and Protestants both. Right. Uh, the Hindus are about 85%. The Muslims almost 15%. So the bottom line of it is I grew up in a world where you can't just say, uh, I believe because of my holy book because somebody else whips out their holy book. Sure. So if you really want to make any kind of headway, you need to have this kind of secular language to be able to cut through and find some common ground for people to have a conversation. Yeah, that's yes. fantastic. Yes. Um, Dinesh, one of the things that I, I appreciate so much about the way you communicate is you deal with fact, you deal with truth, uh, you deal with problems and issues and potential issues. You're able to go back historically and say, you know, this is where we were and this is where we're going to end up. All of that is true of the way you speak, but you wrap it in hope. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that you give a hopeful message when you talk about the future and what is possible and what can happen. When you talk about the American dream and living the American dream, are you hopeful for America and the future of the American dream? And if so, in a world that is so lacking hope, uh, why are you hopeful? I think that uh, there is an important distinction to be made, and I would make this both politically and theologically, between uh, hope and optimism. Mm. Uh, uh, hope and optimism are actually not the same thing. Um, optimism is, in fact, the uh, conviction that things will turn out well. The optimist is a sort of a prophet who says, oh, no, don't worry. It's going to be OK. It's going to be it's going to be good. Um, the pessimist is the one who emotionally or temperamentally feels the opposite. Mm. Things are going to be bad. Um, the hopeful person actually is 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 in neither camp. Uh, the hopeful person can actually be on the pessimistic side. In fact, I would say theologically, I obviously take the Christian or pessimistic view of human nature. <laughs> right. uh, I think it was the philosopher Immanuel Kant who said, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Mm. And what he's trying to get at is that human institutions are not going to work. Uh, you expect them to fail. Right, right. Uh, but ironically, out of that comes a certain kind of hope because let's look at it this way. If you expect things to fail, you're going to have modest expectations of the world. Mm. And then when things don't turn out so bad, you're like, oh, wow. You know, I kind of expected everything to come crashing down, the house to collapse. But, you know, it's still standing. We're okay. Still somewhat bruised. Uh, so the bottom line of it is, I think, even in the political sphere, I don't expect a lot. 
Um, I expect government agencies to bungle. I'm not that surprised to hear that, you know, the post office doesn't work that well, <laughs> that, you know, nobody there is looking out for the bottom line, right. that it costs $700 to buy a coffee pot for the Air Force. <laughs> um, so it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the government's doing something on the conservative side or on the liberal side, that's government. You know, they, they whatever they do, they do badly. Hmm. Uh, and I kind of expect that. Uh, so I expect COVID relief to go awry and most people not to really get their checks and money to go to people who don't deserve it. So this is the way we bungle along. And I think because I have those expectations, uh, I don't spend you know, my day with a hangdog look, even though I do think that now in America, we're in a more precarious situation than we have been. I mean, I haven't seen the kind of attacks, not just on free speech, but on due process of law. I mean, basic civil liberties that are that were at one point the common consensus of left and right. We never fought about those when I came to America, but now it seems like the left has really gone almost full tyrannical on us in which we've realized they don't really believe in these basic constitutional protections. Right. Uh, no. And so I, I do think our situation is, is a little dicey right now. Yeah, but since it's governed by humans, this is part of what we have to deal with. That's true, but even among humans, you've got uh, you've got the so-so, the you've got the the bad and the worse. In other words, the sometimes right. you have to ally with the bad guy to get rid of the worst guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dinesh, the principle we could of the lesser evil, I call it. We were talking about that earlier. The the lesser evil. We're at a place now where we have to stop saying I'm not going to just vote for the lesser evil, right? Yeah. I, I'm going to go for whoever I can to help us move forward. <laughs> No, absolutely. Uh, I do think that um, I do think that we actually need a, a completely different, more creative opposition, uh, one that is able to create, not just complain about the institutions that exist. So, for example, in digital censorship, um, I mean, these are private companies. Uh, they've built these monopolies. Now, admittedly, they built them on lies by promising, oh, we're going to have this great freedom of speech and open discussion and the world's greatest online forum. And, you know, it's these, these people are chronic liars, and I don't think they ever meant it. Uh, but they were able to build monopolies based upon it. But the truth of it is that those monopolies, at least in the Biden administration, will not be dismantled by the government, uh, right. most likely. And therefore, you need to build alternative platforms. It may not be easy to do, but you have to do it uh, so that you're not just whining about censorship, but you've actually got other platforms to go to. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Dinesh, thank you. We could, uh, we could talk all day. Appreciate your perspective on this. Where can people follow you and a lot of folks, particularly on this, uh, this network would, but where do people follow you, learn from you, get your books, watch the documentaries? Well, my website is just DineshDesouza.com. I'm all over social media. So please follow me on the different platforms. And by the way, I'm not just on, you know, uh, Twitter uh, and Facebook. I'm also on these alternative platforms like Parler and Rumble. Rumble is a really great video platform. I've got over a million followers wow. on Rumble. I'm also now doing a daily podcast, just a Dinesh D'Souza podcast. Yeah. And it's both in audio and, and video. So in audio, it is on Apple and Spotify and Google Audio. And in video, it's both on YouTube and Rumble. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Amazing. I know a lot of your content is on the Salem Network as well, which is uh, where our show uh, is hosted also. So uh, awesome. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate your work. Yeah. And I hope we get the opportunity to talk again. Yeah, so thank, thank you. you. I certainly look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Yes. Thank you. What an honor to have Dinesh D'Souza on with us and break some of these things down. Yeah. Dinesh is one of those uh, individuals I think we could talk to you all day long yeah. and just be captivated by. Yeah. It uh, reminds me of my conversations with David Barton. When I'm, when I'm with David, I just kind of just dial in. I it's incredible. And, and there's so much there to learn and to understand. And uh, clearly we can't 
learn everything yeah. in one 25-minute episode. So uh, trying to sum it all up, <laughs> walking away from our conversation, this is today's Situation Report. Specific to our conversation about living the American dream, the first aspect of this is that really, fundamentally, living the American dream is having the ability to pursue your own destiny. Having the ability to pursue your own destiny. Dinesh talked about the economic aspects of that and the economic freedom that comes with that. But really, it's, it's looking down the road, believing this is where you should go and having the ability to work toward that. I think we could see that all the way back to our founding documents. A second aspect of this, though, that we need to really hang on to as Americans is that although the definition of the American dream has been redefined or re-encapsulated in some conversations, it hasn't changed. Even though others are talking about the American dream differently than we've traditionally understood it, what it is, the ability to, with the liberties provided by our Constitution, uh, move forward as we believe God has ordained us to do, we still have the opportunity to do that. That is what the American dream is all about. And then finally, and, and again, this is explained so well, we need to be very careful not to put our hope in man or man-made institutions. Remember, going back one point, it is the ability to pursue what we believe God has put in front of us, to pursue the path that he set before us. And so with that, we can have hope, but not put our hope in man or man-made institutions. Let's enjoy the liberty that has given to us by God and pursue what he has set in front of us. We need to take very seriously and very personally the responsibility to live and live out the American dream. So many great things were said today, and I trust that you'll go back and listen to this conversation again. But hopefully that sums up some of the main points for you today as we conclude our situation report. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.